Hello and welcome to Measurement Matters, the podcast that provides free tips and tricks on measuring the difference your activities have on people and the planet. My name is Matt Bevan and I'm your host. Joining me on this episode will be Tom Aston, an independent consultant and thought leader on monitoring and evaluation based in the UK. I recently discovered Tom's work when doing my own reading, stumbling onto one of his fabulous blog posts entitled, How to Make Theories of Change More Useful. It was a question I was asking myself at the time, so I had to get Tom on the podcast. Today's conversation is an introduction to Tom and his work, along with an exploration of his insights on how we can use critical thinking to better understand how and why change occurs in our programs and activities. So, without further ado, let's get started and see what we can learn and share together today. Tom, welcome. Hi there. Thanks for joining me today. Really excited about this um, chat. What I like to do with these podcasts is just start with a little bit of um, an introduction to you and what it is you do. Um, so I'm an I'm a independent consultant, um, working mostly on uh, monitoring and evaluation of international development projects. Um, and uh, that varies country to country, but um, I'm mostly a mixture of a qualitative researcher and evaluator. That's um, my background, basically. Awesome. Yeah, great. And I mean, the, the reason I reached out to you, Tom, is because I was very impressed with um, your blog, which I've be- recently become aware of. Um, and uh, particularly, you know, some of the things you're writing um, about. Uh, and so I just I wanted to talk about a few of those today. The other thing I like to start with is just this kind of a bit of a discussion about terms. Um, so you know, what is, what is this outcomes measurement or this thing we're talking about where we're measuring the difference we have in the, the lives of people through our activities? What, is it, what does it kind of mean to you and why is it important? So it's, it's always difficult talking about um, terms of people because in, in different countries, people have widely varying views on uh, what this actually is about. Um, where, where I began in my career... Um, we used the term impact quite a lot, but we had a very specific view of the word impact, which was about people benefiting. And there's an awful lot of other things that are not necessarily about people directly benefiting from whatever your activities um, are. I tend, um, I tend to use monitoring evaluation um, because that's the sort of the stock and trade term um, where I come from. Um, but I tend actually to avoid the word measurement um, largely because I tend to associate that with a quantitative worldview. Um, and I'm, I'm probably 70% qualitative and 30% quantitative. Um, and they're both equally important, but um, I tend to be more about um, explaining things within a particular place in a particular case um and about explanation more than i am about measuring the difference um so that's sort of where i where i tend to sit uh in the conversation i tend to avoid certain conversations about 
um, certain methods or certain things that I don't know very much about because uh, it's dangerous getting into um, some of that territory sometimes. That's great. I, I really like that. And I appreciate that honest response for a podcast that's called Measurement Matters. Um, you know, that's a, that it's worth bringing up that idea that the, the words we use can really, you know, make people think in a particular way. And there are these real differences uh, around the world and, and around Australia as well. We find the same thing. Um, so why do you feel this stuff is important? Like, Why do we need this monitoring and evaluation for the things we do? I mean, I think I think it matters um, because we're all seeking um, to know whether we've made a difference or not, and whether or not the time we spent was worth it. Uh, generally, we have the assumption that things that we do do make a difference, and that it was worth doing. But that isn't always the case. Um, so, I think for me, more than anything else, it's a way of keeping us honest. Um, in the same in the same way that um, we would use the term impact, we used as I say we use that to refer to people actually benefiting. Um, and there's a debate at the moment about whether you should or shouldn't use the term beneficiary because it's loaded and potentially toxic and paternalistic. But at the same time, it's something where. I'd always seen it as forcing ourselves to account to that person who we claim benefited. Um, so I've been quite comfortable with the term, but with a very long sort of caveat to the term, um, because at the end of the day, whatever we're doing should be to the benefit of those people and we should be accounting to the people we, we hope will benefit from whatever projects, interventions that, um, that we may have in whatever um, whatever work we're doing really I think that's got I mean I love that concept around being accountable keeping us honest knowing what's going on um how did you when when did you realize this was something that you you wanted to get involved in I think yeah I fell into this by some some accident really um I for all of those um awkward reasons I suppose um, around terms like beneficiaries um, I I fell into the international development sector somewhat by accident but out of sort of uh, out of a, a rather grand interest in trying to make the world a better place uh, which uh, uh, which you you quickly realize um, there are all sorts of problems with that um, but I was I was lucky enough given uh, where I was positioned uh, that I got to learn very quickly. Um, so I started my career uh, in the sector working, uh, basically reporting on a big food security project in Bolivia um, for a very large NGO called Care International. And one of the very first things I actually did was going out to meet people and saying, how has this project affected you? So we used what I didn't know at the time was called Most Significant Change, um, where I would go out and harvest up stories uh, that people would tell me, partly to corroborate that things had happened, as we said, but also really just to hear their perspective on what mattered to them. So that was my point of departure. Uh, but I didn't really know what evaluation was or M&E was or any other sort of construct at that time. I think I only really realised how important it was 
I had one, one example where in another project was an adult education project, um, same country, same organization. And we, we work quite a lot in, with minors um, in a place called Potosí, which is where this old Spanish colonial mint was. And it's, a, it's something with a, an enormous amount of stigma, but also with all sorts of risks associated, um, as I'm sure you know, in Australia. Um, and I, I vividly remember this story from this one guy, probably in his mid-20s, I think he was. Um, and I was, I, I think a lot of people felt that the project hadn't made a big difference to them. But this guy was absolutely adamant that this had genuinely helped him. Um, and... And he was able, partly as a result of that, to, to if you like, have a different path, uh, to choose a different path for himself, really. Um, and that was where, you know, you realise that that kind of conversation matters, uh, but that also telling that story matters. Um, much later on, um, I came back to the UK to study further, um, not necessarily evaluation, but um, I, I did a... I did a PhD, which research, evaluation, there's lots of overlaps. Um, and so I, I think partly as a result of that and partly because of the previous background, um, when I was working from the, the London office of the same organisation, I complained a lot about how bad our data was, um, how, how poor our explanations were. And, I, and it became my problem, basically. Um, uh, so, so I became more and more involved, I think at a deeper level, um, when it, when something became manifestly my problem. That's great. Cause it sounds like your, your passion and your drive for getting into this area came from that place of wanting to know what's going on, getting those stories, and then actually, you know, sort of the understanding of what's happening was driving the need for more data, not sort of a theoretical aspect or a, you know, a training thing or a we think we should have this, but this real passion for actually knowing what's going on and having something to to use that's meaningful. Yeah, that's probably a, a slightly more romantic view of it for me. Actually, I was going to actually say, um, I think for me, actually, personally, it comes from a deep place of insecurity of not understanding things and, and desperately striving to, um, to understand things. Um, but I think you put it much better. Um, but I also think that it comes from a place of some degree of suspicion in that um, we're told marvellous things all the time. And uh, we, we should be asking questions of people. Um, we should we should not necessarily take things at face value, and I think that a lot of this discipline, if you like, or this area of work, is is very much about um, uh, corroborating corroborating somebody's point of view about something, uh, or checking checking the data if if that's another way of looking at it. In many cases, um, so I, I think it's from. A place of insecurity and suspicion in some respects for me well that's a good that's a good segue to start talking about theories of change isn't it because i mean well, maybe we'll start off with a definition of what it is but it is yeah so what what tell me what is a theory of change to you so um i think the most basic way to talk about a theory of change is as a hypothesis of how and why change happens 
So in other words, it's an idea of how and why you expect particular change to happen. Um, and there's all sorts of different ways of articulating them specifically, but most commonly in the international development sector, they refer to um, basically if A and B then C statements, often with sort of because, and they tend to be represented visually as a diagram with boxes and arrows. Um, so people know what it is by what it looks like often, but they don't always necessarily unpack it um, very seriously. So that's sort of, um, that's how the the how and the why come sort of back front and centre. So in hopefully. terms of that, that, that story, um, why is it, why is that useful? Why do we need that? I mean, there must be a, a, a few reasons why it's useful or it sounds like getting people on the same page in terms of the story but then you're also talking about this digging a bit deeper um can you tell me a bit about that yeah so I think I think it depends because it can mean different things to different people and you can go at different levels of difficulty and and, and complexity um and so it's often used as a as a means of gaining consensus about how how we think change happens, so it's very useful uh, potentially as a planning, strategizing meeting, um, and that I think is often how people use it. But it can be it can be used for more than just getting agreement among people who already basically agree, um, if you like. Um, and that tends to come with asking those different question, difficult questions about, um, you know, how believe, how credible, so you know, the theory is, um, how well connected it is, what your assumptions underpinning that uh, that idea might well be, um, and that's generally speaking where people um, tend to shirk that 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 it um, that. I want to say responsibility, that's probably a little bit too grand. Um, but that's where often things go slightly wrong um, because they don't, I think, want to open the black box and um, and actually seriously question their assumptions. Uh, I read um, something by, uh, I forget who was an organisational learning person, I think, um, and he said something like, um, the reason people do this is because they genuinely don't want people to to scrutinize or critique their idea. Uh, and so it, it comes back to honesty again, where if, you, if you're serious about this, you open yourself up to scrutiny and you're prepared to be wrong uh, and to prove yourself wrong. Um, and that's part, I think, of the, that's part of the, that should be part of the process for me. But that, it, it's interesting because that talks to quite a difficult thing, isn't it? Because, you know, we want to tell a good story all the time. And there's this certain thing about, you know, being, um, talking to our services in a very good way. Um, and and I, I suppose you're talking to different stages. You're talking to that high-level view of what happens, um, which gets everyone on the same page. But, you know, that process in itself is quite useful. And then after that, you actually want to go into a bit more detail and really start asking those questions about, well, how really does this work? How are we going with all those things? What do we need to tinker with? Because it sounds like it's not a set-and-forget thing. You're talking about... I'm, I suppose what I'm hearing is this evolution from this high-level picture into this, you know, more honest um, uh, and open analysis of what's going on so that you can actually really get it into that and, and 
create some change or some tinker with some things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a critical thinking process. I mean, there's lots of critical thinking tools out there. And I just think this is one means of, of, of doing that, um, of doing that same thing. I mean, if you take that, um, if you buy that argument, uh, perhaps I have to defend it to you. But um, what that means is that they're good if they help you to think critically and they're bad if they don't help you to think critically or worse, if they actively deter you from thinking critically about your strategy, your plan or whatever. There's also, I mean, there's there's different terms of this, but you can also think of theories of change as sort of matryoshka dolls in that they fit one within the other and you can have big, grand, large ones uh, which you don't necessarily delve into the details and other ones which can be really, really hyper-local and really, really granular. And it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. They're, they're good for slightly different things at different levels of abstraction. Um, and so you can get really testable ones uh, where you do go into the very small component parts, but not everybody wants to go that far, partly because they don't actually want to test their theory, either because it's not ready to be tested, uh, which is fair enough, uh, or because they're worried if they do test it, then they'll find something that they don't want <laughs> to be made public. Um, so I had a colleague um, at Care, actually, who did a wonderful thing on uh, learning from failure. Um, and... Uh, I remember she said that every year they would appraise whether or not evaluation reports actually mentioned failure. Uh, and it was a great success that more evaluations the following year, I think, had mentioned it than the year before. And that's not a, that isn't a failure, that's a success, if that makes sense. Um, and I think as, you know, I mean, it's been said a million times, but um, models are always wrong, right? So n these are just models. Uh, you expect them to be wrong. Um, and if, if they're not wrong, then you don't need them. Um, if you already know everything, then there's nothing that your, that your new strategy is going to tell the world that we don't already know. Um, so I think you're, I, I feel that you're caught in a bind there, really, um, a bit. No, it's interesting because I was thinking, I mean, it sounds like, you know, this question comes up, how do you know you've got a good theory of change? I love that idea of the different levels and them all fitting to, together like the dolls. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, well, how do you how do you come up with a set of questions to ask yourself whether what you've got is serving your purpose? And it sounds like you've got to be very clear about what you're using that theory of change for on those different levels. Um, but you've also got to ask yourself if um, you feel a little bit uncomfortable with it. Mm. Yeah, I think if you're if you're not asking yourself difficult questions, you're not doing it right. Uh, if you're not uncomfortable, um, then you're not thinking hard enough. Um, um, in some ways, um, how how do you know whether you have a, a good one or not? Um, I mean, there's lots of I think there's lots of different ways. Um, but I found myself that um, there were a couple of things um, that I wrote up recently, very, very quickly, um, but that probably because I wrote them very quickly, I've, I've seen and heard uh, a million times in, in some way. Um, there are lots of things you can do, like you can add feedback loops and, and all sorts of things to, to, to 
if you really want to dig into stuff, you can break stuff down into very minute chunks um, and things like that. But I think that probably the most important one for for people in general is is just to to define clear boundaries about where you where you think you can influence. Um, it's so easy nowadays, and increasingly so, I think, with systems thinking, for people to just go bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more. A complex is not necessarily the right word, but 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 how people misuse the word complex um, as a I'm a clever I'm a clever person word. Um, and actually from from complexity theory, one of the key things is actually to draw systems boundaries. So you're you're trying to figure out actually where is it plausible that I or my partners could in fact influence this actor or this particular change. And that is itself a difficult a difficult realization often when you get people to actually prove that they've had such an influence as they claimed, you very often find that they haven't necessarily, or they can't really substantiate it particularly well. So drawing clear, clear boundaries is actually helpful in terms of um, keeping you honest, but also um, planning better, uh, I, I think, because there are all sorts of limits to, uh, to how much you as a particular organization or a particular project can do to that wider system anyway. Uh, and it's better, I think, to be humble uh, than to oversell something, which I think people so often um, so often do. Um, I mean, for me, probably of all the things, and I wrote another blog on this many months ago, um, based on a few books earlier on theory-based evaluation, is that really theories of change, although they are a critical thinking exercise, that means that they're about assumptions. Um, they're about evidence and assumptions. And so those are actually two things that we spend far too little attention on. We don't actually look what's the evidence for what we're proposing to begin with enough, uh, because it tends to come from people in the room and their folk wisdom. Um, and we very rarely either articulate or assess the assumptions or revise and assess the assumptions that we have. Um, so I think rather than particular widgets, it's, I think it's more a question of asking yourself whether or not your assumptions still hold, uh, whether or not um, it's still reasonable or plausible that the arrow that you put on the diagram um, is, does actually reflect some, some sense of cause and effect. Um, and those are the things to zoom in on really, rather than um, any particular sub-tool or technique, I think. Uh, it's, it's to go back to assumptions and go back to evidence and go back to logic because theories of change are, uh, they're logic. It's set theoretic. It's, uh, you know, it's the same as a logical framework. People don't like logical frameworks anymore because they're not sexy, but it's the same stuff. Mm. it's the same basic premise yeah no that's brilliant and and that I mean a lot of that really resonates with what I hear as well you know I was I was thinking as you were talking about the example where someone offers a training program and the theories of change mean that through that training program someone gets a job um, they buy a house and they live for you know you know they live their dream I become a podcast host and uh, everything goes really, really well and claiming all of that and actually that perhaps not being targeted or honest or, or really what, what we're talking about in the, in the biggest story of change. Um, 
you know, and the assumptions and testing. So that talks to all these other elements that you really need to consider. But I, I think to my mind, I would the main thing I wanted to just address is when people do a theory of change, I often see that that's a two hour workshop. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a, that's an exercise where we get a number of people together. We have a go at it. And sometimes it's a sort of set and forget, you know, you, you yep. do that, you, you socialize it, you get some agreement, you reach something which feels right for that point in time in terms of what you're trying to achieve and the evolution. And that's a great bit of work. Um, but then sometimes that's parked. And what you're talking about is you're talking about this, this evolutionary or this iterative process. And actually, you know, that may be a great bit of work, but the moment you stop and you park it and you stop evolving it and iterating, iterating um, you've potentially lost the purpose of the critical thinking and the evolutionary aspect of that. But I mean, I think also you can lose the, what was good about that two hour meeting which is partly you got agreement with your colleagues about what you thought you were trying to do. You may not agree in six months because things change and you may realise that, in fact, uh, you didn't agree on certain things and it, you took it for granted that you did. Um, and I've seen that on a number of occasions where you go back to the theory of change a, a year later and you go, oh, I don't remember this at all. Um, and so I think, yes, it's something that... Um, it's very, very common, and particularly around strategy, to have a strategy document, a diagram that looks pretty, and we leave it there forever um, and never actually try and test it. Um, I've had a number of occasions where we've made um, more specific, more testable theories of change, uh, where it's not a two-hour uh, workshop. It's a five-day workshop times two, probably, Um and uh, so you, yeah, you can get really, that's too much for a lot of people. But I think that you can zoom in on bits of the theory of change and reappraise those. Uh, and so I think it's not a question of you need to revise everything and reappraise everything, but um, focus on where, um, where your assumptions don't appear to be holding and ask why. Um, because that's the bit that you need to fix. I mean, you can you can look at all sorts of stuff in the tech industry around design thinking and it, you know, iterate and all this sort of stuff. Um, but where where that can give us lessons is about the the bit of the bit of the project, if you like, that is not quite working, um, and how they can refine and 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 um, work on that particular bit. You're not working on the whole thing if you have to redo everything um, then you go back to the drawing board but things that succeed if you like as a way you can tinker with um, bits of the diagram and and feel that the rest of the diagram I'm not going to touch that for now because it's not happened yet and therefore it's not worth reappraising or we can still wait to test this bit or we don't have enough evidence yet or whatever and I think the other thing is that even if you have a two-hour workshop, you can prepare better beforehand, so you can revise the evidence beforehand. Or you can, if you haven't done that, you can go and find evidence to support whatever it is that you had in those two hours. Not everybody in the room needs to do that, um, but if somebody does that, at least it's a it's an honesty check again on whether or not anyone's ever done this before, and whether it worked or not. So take your 
um, training and uh, transformative change. We used to do knowledge, attitude and practice surveys in all sorts of projects. And so commonly you'd find people's knowledge change because of a training, their attitude may change, but their practice doesn't change. Why is that? For various reasons, but among them is social norms. Um, and so even if your knowledge changes and your attitude changes, if your friends think it's still uh, not cool, um, then, then you may not change your behaviour. And this is really sad when we're talking about things like gender-based violence. And that, unfortunately, is some of the stuff we were talking about. Um, but that, you know, that forces you to reappraise um, sort of the easy fix to the, to the difficult problem. And there was another, I, when, you, when you were telling me uh, your, your example, it reminded me of um, one experience in Ghana where there was a, there was a poster on the wall of, of a woman whose life had been transformed by the project. And it was a great story, but there is no, there's no, uh, I don't think there was much to it at all. Um, it was of somebody who basically has received, who'd been part of a village savings and loans program and then became a local um, MP basically in, in her part of Northern Ghana. And we were sat in the room with other partners. Uh, I think it was from Oxfam or IBIS or both, I think technically. Um, and they said, oh, well, we know her too. Honorable Deborah was her name. That was, um, uh, and they were like, oh, we've done all these things with her as well. And you're like, well, which one of you, which one of you is claiming the change here? Uh, and so from, from that moment on, it became a, a test case in, you know, what not to do, um, how not to overclaim, uh, how to close the gap between step one, step two, step three. Um, but there, were, there was a, a list of all sorts of activities that clearly she, she would not have benefited from. She already owned two businesses. She was obviously already quite well connected. And so there was a few things that probably the project contributed to, but the vast majority of the change was her and that's how it normally is um so it became a really good example of um what would not be a good theory of change uh and and and, and the many uh, limitations of the normal way that we tell stories about um how we believe uh, we contribute to change um it's it's wonderful because as you as you when we're talking about theory of change here and we've already opened up these, you know, these conversations about behavior change, you know, how you change behavior, about attribution, who can claim, claim what. Um, and it just draws out that idea that this is the foundation for a lot of really, really good discussions if you get curious. Um, so, you know, it's, um, uh, we could probably go down a rabbit hole with all of those. It um, may not be for today, which we can, we can definitely park for another occasion. Um, but I, I, yeah, as I say, I love, I love that idea of the theory of change, perhaps not being a document, but being a, a process, an ongoing process, um, which, which you get really curious and that, that, that helps you go down these avenues to work out these things, which are really, really important to what you do every day. So you have to continue that discussion at various levels through your organization. Um, do you, do you advocate for any particular formats for these? Um, I mean, it sounds like as they develop from a headline story to being more in-depth document, you might want to dive into more areas like problems, assumptions, and causality, or, or, or are you pretty open to the format? 
Is it I mean, I've that? seen lots of different formats that work for different people for different reasons. Um, um, I think, I mean, a diagram is always helpful. So I would always try and have a diagram. I think lots of people would recommend having a diagram. Um, and there's always, I think, a benefit to having something which is visual and something which is text. Um, because you realize when there's a discrepancy between the text and the diagram that there's maybe something wrong in your explanation or your hypothesized explanation. I've found that myself on a number of occasions where I go, this looks fine in the diagram, but when I write it down in, in a, you know, if, then, because, et cetera, I go, oh, actually, I'm missing something. Um, so I think a, a sort of a, a bare minimum, have a diagram, have a, have, have a text. Um, I think that what you then add to it after, after that is, is, a bit, it is a bit contingent on what you want it to be. Um, and what type of, if you like, behavior change you're, you're talking about. So um, some people like, uh, well, I, to be honest, I'm reasonably traditional in that I actually don't mind log frames. I don't mind uh, sort of boring box diagrams um, because I feel that when you strip stuff back, it forces you to think more. You're not you're not distracted too much by the beauty of the diagram or the eloquence of, of the writing. Um, and it reminds me, I, 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 my first degree was a philosophy degree. And I remember incredibly boring logic classes, but it reminds me of that going, there's a reason why this is good. And it's because it's, because it's different. It's because it's, it really forces you to think. And so whatever it is that I think can help you to think more either about the problem or about your assumptions or about the arrows, I think of the three, I would say, um, can be good for you. And different organizations will find different tools that can help them to do that. So different problem analysis things. I know some people like problem trees, some people like um, fishbone diagrams. Don't think it really matters. Um, and similarly, there's a lot of good tools around assumptions um, some are much heavier than others. Uh, I really like um, causal link monitoring because it forces you to say what was the, you know, what's your most vulnerable assumption and and, and unpack it. Um, so there are a bunch of tools out there that can allow you to go further. Uh, causal link monitoring is good, is partly because it fits nicely with a normal log frame. It's quite, tr it's it's relatively traditional looking, but it's quite. Um, amenable to um you know systems thinking and and what have you so um there's lots of extra tools out there but i think at the at the root um have a diagram have a text see if they fit together um check your problems check your assumptions check your arrows um and everything else on top of that is a is a bonus for me good and in terms of, um, I just could quickly, I can't, I can't, um, I can't really, uh, I'm really struggling to wind up because I'm enjoying the conversation so much. But um, I just wanted to just explore that idea of who's in the room when you're having a go at this and whether you, what your views are of the sort of participatory angle to this, you know, how, how, how diverse a group do you need in the room to, to be having these conversations? So I'm generally um, a big pro-participation person. Um, so I have natural biases towards that. Um, 
I think it again, it depends what for. Um, I tend to accept if it's a strategy meeting that you kind of need the CEO in the room and his or her opinion matters more than everybody else. But possibly as a result of that, you're not necessarily digging into, you know, the rationale behind it. And so it's more of a performative task. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I've found, and in terms of a more, how do we test these things? I've definitely found the same Ghana group, in fact, having different organizations in the room was very helpful. Having different pe people with different disciplines in the room was also very helpful. So we had like a communications person who had a different angle, uh, an M&E person who had a particular angle. You had the person who was responsible for doing the work itself who was in the. So having that broad spectrum was, was really helpful. You've got to always manage the hierarchies in the room as a facilitator. Um, uh, so that's something to bear in mind as to who perhaps should be there and how much time and airtime you give to different people. But I definitely think that as with any, as with any um, analysis meeting as well, um, when you have your partners in the room, that could be helpful. Um, when you have, or another way of doing this, in fact, is actually like making sure you have critical voices in the room. And sometimes you can actually nominate people to be the critical voice in the room. I rarely struggle to be that person. So I'm often that person, whether I'm nominated or not. Um, uh, but having, having that critical view is, is really important, but also just um, having someone whose job it is to defend whatever bit of a theory, I think is, um, is also important. Um, but it, yeah, it depends a little bit what, what you're trying to do it for um, as to, I mean, we've had other times where you can bring specialists in for particular bits, but you can get distracted by that sometimes. So sometimes it's better to have enough prep beforehand, have a big meeting, which is about getting consensus and then do some after work where you can refine things. Often the person who facilitates goes off and writes up and adds a few things or, or asks for further clarifications. So even if it's a two hour meeting, it's never quite finished um because you've always got questions to to follow up on i think that's great I, I love i love the idea of that diversity you know the different views and having that having a richer dialogue um and also again i think you're talking to this iterative nature of this and that giving pe people permission not to feel that you know you start the workshop you finish the workshop you've got everything you need i think giving people permission that you've got to keep going back and forwards and 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 that 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 opens us up to trying new things and being open to open to um, sort of our experimentation, which is really really good. Now, Tom, I um I, I feel like I could um, we could chat all day, but it's getting late in the UK, um, and uh, I, I feel we've got to land this plane. Um, one of the things I wanted to draw people out to is that you you've actually got a lot more information that you write on your blog. Um, yes, I mean, this came sort of as a me scratching an itch about um, maybe 18 months ago. Um, I, I, I got frustrated by an argument people were having about um, Nobel laureates winning, uh, you know, Esther Duflo and uh, Banerjee winning the, the Nobel Prize. And people on my side of the argument being really mean about um, the randomisters. And me going, I don't think it's awfully helpful for, for all of us to be criticising them. Why don't we get better at what we're doing? 
uh, and be, be helpful to one another. And so that sort of kind of prompted me into writing the variety of things of methods that I've used, um, which are broadly theory-based or participatory methods. And what I've learned from applying them, and I asked people who I know also use the same method to give me some input around that. So it's just me working through um, some of my own learning, really. Um, mostly, as I say, on the theory theory side or the, or the qualitative side. Um, but I, I also, um, for your listeners as well, I, I was desperately encouraging other people to write blogs in response. And a few people did, which was really, really helpful uh, for me as well, because uh, I got as much out of it as I think they did. Um, but yeah, I th- uh, um, there's, there's a few dozen out there, I think now, uh, all in broadly the same um the same territory so um i'd be curious to hear what people think of it but more than anything else uh, as an encouragement for people to uh, to get it down and uh the theory of change blog that, that you read I, I wrote that in about two hours because i was frustrated and angry by something that i read um and i felt should i put this out or not is it going to be is it going to annoy people and 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 pe- it was quite well received probably because it was unfinished and um, slightly illiterate and um, not quite, not you know, quite half baked. Um, but it was raw enough and resonated with enough people that I think it got people um, in the conversation. Uh, which at the end of the day is, is I think what matters most. Yeah, it's great. It's one of the richest resources I've come onto in recent times, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing in terms of, you know, having that discussion and having an open, candid conversation where you're sharing what you know. And broadening that discussion so that we can all get all get better together. So I'll put the I will put the um, the blog on the on the on the podcast notes on the show notes. Um, and if people want to follow you, I mean, I came across you on LinkedIn. So is that is that one of the best ways to follow you as well as your blog? Yeah, I'll I'll post them there. I think the blog is on. I put it on Medium, I think, so you can you can see it there. Yeah. And I'm on Twitter as well. So. Um, Anyone who wants the conversation, um, please find me there and, and, and tell me what you like and don't like. And as I say, write your own, because I think we need more voices. Uh, and, and if I can be blunt, ideally, and especially not just, um, not just middle-class white men like me, uh, yes. <laughs> even if that's part of the conversation, I'm desperate to hear dissonant voices from elsewhere um so yeah keen to keen to broaden the conversation too yeah i really appreciate that well tom thanks so much for your time today um i really appreciate it and um it will put a bit of that stuff in the show notes but um i'd be really interested in reconnecting over time and seeing if we can continue this conversation um to help people benefit from your work yeah i'd I'd be very happy to do that and um yeah thanks so much for reaching out it was it was really enjoyable, actually. I probably got a bit carried away, but I mean, oh, that's... You're a star. We really appreciate what you're doing for this space. Great. Thanks so much. Well, how did that land for you? I was super pleased to be able to get Tom to speak on the podcast, and I hope you also found that conversation useful to your work. I highly recommend you follow Tom's blog and also follow him on LinkedIn or Instagram. I'll put those details in the show notes. As always, if you've got any feedback, then please get in touch. 
And if you want to speak on a future episode, then give me a call. For all of you out there having conversations about well-being and giving measurement a go, keep up the good work because measurement matters.